In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Recently, I found myself with a group of other ministers and Christian leaders from all sorts of denominational backgrounds and beliefs, um, although strongly, truly all believing in Jesus Christ. Um, And we were asked a question for reflection. The question was, where is God at work through your present circumstances to crush the old you? And I was surprised to find that some of my fellows were shocked to hear this question because they very clearly did not feel comfortable thinking about God as the kind of God who purifies and refines us in life, this life, through the crucible of whatever suffering we walk through. And so I suspect that they also would have trouble understanding and embracing the story in our lesson from Genesis for this Um, that we had this morning. And I would have to agree, it's hard to hear God asking Abraham to do something seemingly atrocious. It's hard to hear him ask him to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, as a burnt offering to God. What do we do with this? How do we approach this story? How do we understand what's going on? Well, of course, we have to always remember that um, God, our God, is a God who requires sacrifice. Um, Simply because of sin being in the world, back in the Garden of Eden, we remember that death enters the world when sin first enters the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. Because they sinned and because they and we, who continue to sin, um, cannot live eternally. That's um, one of God's severe mercies, that he doesn't allow us to live eternally in our sin. Thank goodness. Um, But because death has entered the world, um, we cannot also then be in the fellowship with a holy God as sinful people because his holiness will consume and destroy any unholiness that is in his presence. And so for that reason, God throughout history has asked for the life of an animal in exchange for for our lives in exchange for the life of his worshipers. And so the exchange, this blood of the animals, temporarily purified and cleansed sinful people um, just for a moment so that they could enter into God's presence. Um, And so there was this exchange, this substitution. And this might seem strange or foreign to us, this this for that aspect of relationship with God. Um, But if we are honest with ourselves, we'll see that every single one of our personal relationships bears witness to this. Every single one of our personal relationships has a this for that, a tit for tat aspect to it. Um, We recognize this right? If you do the dishes, I'll do the laundry. Let's keep it fair on that level of this for that, or um, especially when there's a wrong that's done. Well, if you've done this, um, then I have to do this. We do this as parents, right? If you do that one more time, I'm going to fill in the blank. And of course, as good parents, we follow through and we do that. Not me yet. She's too little. But I see other parents doing that. And I see us doing that in our relationships, whether we want to or not. So-and-so hurt my feelings. Well, in my unhealthiness, I'm going to not talk to them for a week, right? We do this or people do this to us. All relationships bear witness to this truth of exchange, this for that um, offense for some kind of consequence. 
And so in this world where um, offerings are normal things happening, in this world, our world, where this happens, for the Old Testament people of God, this would not have been an unusual thing that God asks Abraham to give him an offering, a sacrifice. But the strange thing here is that God, first of all, asks Abraham to give his own son. This was something that the Lord God forbade his people to do. And Leviticus and Deuteronomy bear witness to this. He says specifically, don't give up your sons and daughters. Don't put them through um, fires of sacrifice in worship of some kind of foreign god. Um, And it's not just the foreign idolatry that's a problem. It's this giving up of something precious with this idea that if I give up something extremely precious to myself, then God, this God, this lowercase g God, will give me what I want. And sometimes the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, were in danger of taking that approach and approaching the Lord, Yahweh, with that same mindset. Yahweh, if we give up this very precious thing, then you will give us this really amazing thing. So it seems strange. Is that what God is asking Abraham to do? It seems as though um, not only is this unthinkable that God would ask Abraham to do it, but specifically it appears as though God is at cross purposes with himself. Because this son, Isaac, is not only... Uh, Abraham's precious son, not just his only son, as the passage says, but the Hebrew approaches this idea of preciousness because, of course, Abraham has another son, Ishmael. This son, Isaac, was the son through whom God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. For nine long chapters prior to this in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah have struggled with infertility. And in this situation, God constantly reassures them that they will have a child that carries the genes of both of them. And not only does God promise to heal their infertility, but he promises that their child, this child would be a special child who would become a great nation of countless people who would inherit the land and with whom God would establish an everlasting covenant or a relationship And then not only that, but through this one child and the nation that came from him, God promised that all of the families, all of the nations, all of the peoples of the earth would be blessed. So why would God uh, be at cross purposes with himself in asking Abraham to offer up this son that finally came? In Genesis 21, we hear that finally God caused Sarah to give birth miraculously to this child when she was 90 and Abraham was 100. Abraham must have been so confused when God turns around just a few years later and tells him to take the wonder baby and go slit his throat on the mountain as an offering to God. What do we do with this? Well, the key is in the passage itself, of course. As with all scripture, we go in deeper to the word itself. And the word itself says at the very beginning in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. God knows what he's doing here. He is specifically testing and trying the faith and obedience of his servant Abraham. This is a trial that he is actively sending Abraham's way, just as he did earlier when he told Abraham to leave his country and family and go to the land that the Lord would show him. Abraham here is being asked to blindly follow God, to trust that God is who he says he is. 
this is a hard thing to hear and to understand, except that we also experience suffering and trials in this life. We walk through things that we would rather not have to walk through. And so if we are going to say that God is sovereign, completely and totally in charge of all that goes on in the universe, we must somehow understand that these trials are things that he either passively or actively sends our way. Some suffering, we could say, falls into the passive category. It simply happens because sin is in the world and the world is an imperfect place. Um, There is evil in this world that we cannot um, control or escape. And so um, living in a fallen world, suffering is inevitable. And God allows this to happen indirectly because he gave Adam and Eve the freedom to sin in the garden. So these things, these passive things that God sends us are with this kind of suffering. This is usually, I find, the thing that bothers me only very minutely, that I wish was different, but it doesn't push me into an existential crisis. For me, for example, one of the things I really don't like is I really hate going to the dentist. I really cannot abide it, and I've always had bad teeth. So even as a little girl, I would sit there and try to calm myself by counting the number of instruments that were in my mouth at a given time, sometimes nine, or counting the ceiling tiles um, to say, okay, there's making a pattern out of them in my mind. Um, All with prayer, of course, as I got to become a Christian, but still, I didn't like them. But these things, dentists don't um, put me on my knees and make me get mad at God and cause me to question his love for me. No, but there are other things, aren't there? There are things that you go through and things that I go through. It's something so difficult that causes us to question, God, what are you doing? Do you really love me? I don't know what your situation is, but I know that because you are a human being, you've been through it. And maybe you're going through it right now. Something that is a true trial from the Lord is something that he is very clearly calling us to. Even if it feels impossible or unbearable or inescapably frustrating, Sometimes these are things um, that from the outside don't seem that terrible. You might not know what the suffering, the trial is that someone else is going through, and that's probably for the best. Um, The trials that God sends some people's way that they really have a hard time with don't seem that bad to me. And then the one that I might go through doesn't seem that bad to them. And yet somehow God is working in each one of our lives. And somehow the trial, the test, feels terrible. It feels probably as terrible as Abraham's trial felt to him. So simply put, being in relationship with God involves undergoing tests, trials that require us to lean back on, into God, to trust that he really is who he says he is. And so I don't know about you, but when you put it like that, I sort of think, well, that's a relationship I could do without. Someone that is trying me, someone that is testing me. I think of this, and I think of amusement parks, especially in the summertime, because we actually get to go to amusement parks in the summertime. And there are some things about amusement parks that mildly scare me. Um, one of my favorite rides, I think, is that whirligig thing. It's, got a, it's top heavy, and it's got a big column. I don't even know what it's called, except the swings. And it rises up, and there are all these hundreds of 
not hundreds, but dozens of swings all the way around. And when it rises up and it tilts and it starts to swirl, all of the swings fling out. And there you are, extend, um, extended over the ground, dozens of feet above the hard ground. And the thing is, you're sitting just in this old-fashioned swing, only with a few chains holding you to the top. And if you really thought about it, those chains could very easily break. Um, for me, that's my favorite ride. It's scary. <laughs> and it doesn't have all the speed or the G-forces. So it's a little tame, but it still gives my heart a thrill. Um, these giant swings, just like other height-oriented things, they require a sense of trust. Um, and the thrill is part of putting our trust in the equipment. And so it's scary, but it's ultimately safe. Um, these thrills are ultimately as safe as the chains holding the swing up. And so what I would say is relationship with the Lord is scary. Suffering and undergoing trials in this life, trusting in the Lord in the midst of them is scary. And it's sometimes as terrifying as Genesis 22, but it is ultimately as safe as the one that we are relying upon. And this is where Genesis 22 can only fully be understood in light of a second aspect of God's character. Yes, he tests and tries those who belong to him, but he is also, as verse 14 says, the one who provides. When Abraham is asked by Isaac, that innocent, unsuspecting boy, where the lamb for the burnt offering will come from, we get a window into Abraham's faith. He answers in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Part of the challenge for Abraham was to believe that God is who he says he is, that God is the one who would not allow anything to unravel God's own plan and purpose for Abraham's life. God had promised a miracle child, and God had followed through on that promise, and he even broke the laws of biology to do it. So surely he would continue to preserve and protect the life of Isaac because it was part of his promise to Abraham. And the letter to the um, Hebrews says that God um, kept his promise and that Abraham trusted even that God might have to raise Isaac from the dead, but that God could do that and he would still keep his promise. Um, Hebrews says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And it says about Abraham, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Like his wife Sarah, Abraham believed because he considered the one making the promise, God himself, to be faithful in keeping his promises. Abraham's faith was vindicated. God is, in fact, true to his own character, the one who provided the miracle baby Isaac, who also tested Abraham, would also provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And so again, our faith in the midst of the sorrows and sufferings that come our way are only as strong as the one in whom we trust, which is to say that our faith is as unshakable as Abraham's because the God who provides for Abraham is the God who never changes. He is the God who is faithful in keeping his promises. He does not test us without providing for us. He is worthy of our trust because his generosity and his loving kindness never fails. And so what do we make of this time of trial and suffering? What do you make of your times of trial and suffering? 
Well, there's an image from scripture that is helpful for understanding it. And it's this image of a crucible. If we understand our times of trial as the crucible of God's refining fire, we understand it as the outworking of faith in our lives, as the refining of who we are, making us into who he desires us to be and into who we are in reality, theologically, because of Jesus' death for us. Malachi 2 talks about how God is a refiner's fire. And the Lord, through Isaiah, again prophesies also to his people Israel, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Well, my own crucible, my own furnace of affliction is actually something I can only talk about now because it's over. Not that one is over. Isn't it funny how once one is over, God provides another trial, another test, another fire to purify us. So I won't tell you about the current one, but I'll tell you about the past one. And that is that when I was in my early 20s and even before that in my teens, I knew that the one thing I wanted to do with my life was to get married and have children. I knew that I wanted to be like my mother, a wonderful mother. She had four children by the time she was 25, 12 grandchildren now, and she loves us all so unconditionally and so faithfully. That was what I wanted to be. That was how I saw myself. That was the desire of my heart. But at age 20, I received a very clear call to ministry, to the preaching of the word, to the studying of the word, to tending and caring for God's people. And I didn't want to do it. No offense, but I didn't want to do it. It wasn't what I wanted. And I had this firm belief that was reinforced only by other people that entering ordained ministry would be a death knell to that desire of my heart. Um, there is, forgive me for the cheesiness of this, but in seminary you kind of hear these phrases passed along behind the um, stage doors of what goes on in churches. And people in leadership would say that the caller is um, for men a chick magnet <laughs> because women are drawn to men who are so faithful and spiritual and leaders in that way and so um, and it's true a lot of men have trouble with that and sometimes some terrible things happen for that reason um, because women are drawn to men with a collar um, but for a woman in a collar, uh, the phrase man repellent was used to me when I was in seminary. Just like a little bit of off for the mosquitoes. Man repellent. If you really didn't want to get married, why don't you get ordained instead? Um, and so I spent long, painful years trusting that somehow, beyond what I could see, God would meet my needs for a family. Um, that if I didn't ever get to get married or have children, somehow I had to trust, and he required that I trust him, that he would fill my need for nurturing, life-giving relationships. And in the midst of the pain and suffering of that, several years, 15 years really, of that pain and suffering, I had to trust that he would. I was on my knees about it constantly, totally dependent upon God to provide for me. And he did. Somehow, amazingly, um, he did. He provided for me family through the church. He provided good friendships, long-lasting friendships, small groups where I wasn't just the single person um, with other single people, but I got to be with families um, and invest in children's lives, um, like my own nieces and nephews. God provided for me in ways I didn't imagine that he could have. 
And then he also changed me. He changed the things that I love so that no longer would I love my own children, but I'd also love his children and that I'd want to serve him with all my heart. And that's something that I couldn't have done. That's something that only he could have done. And so somehow in the midst of the fire of that painful crucible, I have to trust that God changed me for the better. Again, a crucible is a place where metal is burned down and melted so that those impurities that ruin its value would be burned away. The fire of a crucible is a purifying fire and not a fire that totally consumes. A forest fire is totaled, uh, total, totals the entire forest. All the trees are dead when there's a forest fire. Nothing survives. It's all consuming. Uh, but a, the fire in a crucible, a refiner's fire, is a fire that purifies, that kills and destroys some things, and then preserves and purifies what remains. And so in the midst of the suffering that you might find yourself experiencing today, can you trust that you will not be destroyed in it, even if it feels excruciating? As with Abraham, we can trust that God will provide us a way out. Even as the um, Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, No testing has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God, of course, provides a way through our suffering and trials and tests, even as he has provided a way, with a capital W, out of our just deserts eternally. And so because there is another father and another son and another sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice, God does not ask us um, to give things that we somehow can um, purchase his favor with. He doesn't have that mentality when he puts us through the fire. Um, God also then doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't undergone himself, just like he didn't ask Abraham to do anything that he wasn't prepared to do himself. The ram that God provided for the sacrifice on Mount Moriah prefigures that lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, whatever your Isaac may be, remember that God has been faithful in the past once and for all, to provide in Christ a way out of the death that would be justly ours. We can trust that he will stay true to his promises. Even as we stand in the midst of the pain of the fire of suffering, we are with him. We are loved by him. We are seen by him. We are upheld by him. He is the God who justifies the ungodly, who raises the dead. And so we know that in this fire of the crucible, We will lose nothing that is truly essential to us, nothing that we really need, even if it means we do lose our livelihood, our personal dreams, our pride and self-sufficiency, our material goods even, our bodies, um, and even sometimes our families might be lost in the process. And yet we can trust that God is refining us, drawing us to himself, giving us somehow the grace to rely upon him more and more. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, in the midst of the crucible in which you have placed each one of us, would you give us your own grace once again? Would you give us the grace to lean back upon you, 
to trust that you are who you say you are. And even though you might test us, you provide for us in the midst of it. And so we ask, Lord, provide, even if it's not in the way we imagine. Provide for us, even as we're on our knees before you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.